Welcome to the Sticks and Stones podcast, bringing you interviews with people from across the globe who are changing the face of sexual health for the better. This is the place to hear about new approaches and initiatives in sexual health, best practice, challenges, and to meet some of the people who are driving change from around the world. My name is Nick Mallon, and I administer the SDI International Exchange, or Sticks. I hope you enjoy today's conversation, and please subscribe to receive future episodes. Today, we bring you um, an interview with Bobby Vanderpol, former president of the American STD Association, current president of the International Society for STD Research, and also a researcher and academic at the University of Birmingham in Alabama. And it brings a slightly different angle to the previous podcast we've had from the US, looking at research, looking at the development of new diagnostic tools, and also looking at the opportunities for global collaboration. We hope you enjoy the episode. So hi, Bobby, lovely to uh, to reconnect. How are you? I'm doing great. How are you, Nick? Yeah, very well. Very well, thanks, uh, Bobby. And really happy to be talking to you today. Do you want to give a bit of background to your current role and your activities um, in the world of sexual health? Sure. I have a varied background. And in general, I've worked in a laboratory diagnosing STIs for about 40 years now. But somewhere along the way, I became much more interested in sexual health and thinking about the ways that we can use um, these test results to help people understand that they're sexually healthy, that they're safe, that things are going great. So I changed my focus a little bit over the years, and my background is actually in health behaviors. And so I like to understand how we can really facilitate people managing their own sexual health, but using modern diagnostic tools to do it. So it's kind of a mixed bag. So your current activity, I know you work in Alabama, and then you're president of the American Society of Sexual Health. Is that correct? I'm president of the International Society for STD Research just now. Um, I'm the immediate past president of the American STD Association. So yeah, I've been in this field for a while and I know many people and, and I get the great opportunity to work with a lot of really positive colleagues. But yes, I am in Alabama, which is in the deep south of the United States, where we have really high STI and HIV rates. So the work that I do is very appropriate for this setting. And that's as a clinician, Bobby. No, I really work as a diagnostician and as somebody who tries to help people in community-based settings understand how to educate the community and how to offer services to the community. But I'm not a clinician and don't see patients directly. Talk to me. That must be quite a challenging role, especially in the Deep South, as you say. What does a typical day look like for you? It varies, of course. But we do, I do run a laboratory, so we do a lot of testing. We actually are involved in working with companies that are developing new test methods, and we evaluate those methods to understand how well they're going to work in different settings. That's one of the most exciting parts of what I do because technology is changing so quickly. And in fact, that's one of the positive sides of the COVID epidemic 
is that we've had a lot of new diagnostic technologies come quickly into service. And I think that eventually these will be applied to STI diagnostics as well. And I think what's going to happen is that in the way that you can go and buy a COVID test at a pharmacy and do it at home, maybe you send it in somewhere or maybe you actually run the test at home. I think the same thing will be happening with STIs within the next two years. So I think it's really exciting. And one of the things that I do is I actually go out into the communities and try to meet with people and understand what people really want. And that's the focus of my research is to understand how people would really like to access services. Do they want to use the internet? Do they want to go to a local store and buy a kit and test it at home? Are they more comfortable getting a sample collected at home but mailing it into a laboratory so that they're really confident in those results? People want different things and we need to understand what they want so we can offer them what makes the most sense. And that's the way we'll get people to actually use these tests and actually start managing their own sexual health. And, and you mentioned home testing and, and innovations. Are there any other innovations that you're seeing alongside the ability for people to test in, in different settings? There's two things that I think will hopefully come out in the next couple of years in addition to home testing, and that is really rapid tests that can be done in a clinic setting to detect those infections that are resistant to the first-line treatment that we would normally prescribe. So if they're resistant, if we know that before they leave the clinic, then we can give them the right prescriptions or the right treatments from the beginning. And this will be really helpful in helping people clear up their infections more quickly, but also to stop passing those resistant infections on to other people because we didn't treat them correctly in the beginning. The second thing is, I think that these technologies are expanding exponentially. And because of that, we're going to see huge price reductions. And I think in settings that are what I would call resource limited, that's going to have a huge impact on making testing available to more people. And that makes perfect sense, especially with the rise of gonorrhea and uh, chlamydia where people are, are, are finding that traditional antibiotics are, are not having having an impact. And, and in home testing, can you summarize the situation in the US around that firstly? And secondly, you mentioned that you were looking at how, you know, people perceive the introduction of home testing and how you've trialed it. What has the, the overall feedback been? So I think that there's a couple of things I'd like to make a distinction. There's home collection of samples, which is in itself a huge innovation in which I think you're very involved with. And that is where people can go perhaps online or perhaps through telemedicine and they order a test, they collect their specimens at home and they mail those specimens away. That's an important first step because that allows people control over when they collect their specimens, when they send them away, and so on and so forth. The next step beyond that will be actual home testing, which we don't have available in the U.S. yet. There aren't any tests that are approved for use at home, but I think those will come soon. And for those, what we need to understand is if, for example, a person is able to go to a pharmacy and buy a test for chlamydia, and they're concerned for whatever reason that they might have chlamydia, they run that test, 
If it's positive, we need to make sure that we can get them into care so they get treated. That's the first step. We need to also be able to identify any exposures to sexual partners so those people can get treated as well. But the next step is whether they're positive or they're negative, if they have chlamydia, they may also have something else. So they may have gonorrhea or they may have trichomonas. They may have syphilis. They may have HIV. So if a person is seeking a test and it only tests for one organism, there's a possibility that maybe they should have a more full evaluation. So what we need to be thinking about is when people buy a home test, how do we encourage them to seek full sexual health care just to make sure that everything's cool? Remember, the 95% of people that take a test are going to get good news. And the God's honest truth is if you're in one of those 5% that get a positive result, in its own way, that's good news too, because now you know what's there and you can get it treated and get rid of it. So it's much better to know than to not know. And I think when we start thinking about these tests this way, instead of thinking that, oh, this is horrible, I have an infectious disease or I have an STI, we should just be thinking, I'm a sexually healthy and active person. I've got something going on here. I need to take care of it. And now I know, so I will take care of it. It's really all good in the long run. That's a great way and a really positive way of looking at it, Bobby. And very pertinent what you say about, um, you know, home testing being a door opener for those who are positive to wider testing and, and partner notification, um, etc. You, you mentioned you work in, in Alabama. How have the governmental bodies and, and public bodies supported your activity? Is, is it a public clinic that you're collaborating with? How does that whole ecosystem work? Yeah, it's complicated in the U.S., but I do work with the public health department that's a local public health department, and they're very active in their STI control program. And and the university that I work with, the University of Alabama at Birmingham, has worked with the local health department for decades. And we have a great relationship where we really focus on providing care to the underserved people in our population In addition to that, you know, I work with people at the Centers for Disease Control and the people at the National Institutes of Health that fund research related to these topics. Some of the more interesting issues in Alabama are that we are, in fact, a resource-limited setting. You know, when I say those words, a lot of people think, oh, she's talking about Africa. Oh, she's talking about Southeast Asia. No, I'm actually talking about places in the U.S., where in some of the counties within our state, we don't even have a hospital. So access to health care is quite difficult for many people in the rural parts of the U.S. And so understanding how they can use Internet available options or how they can use telemedicine and telehealth as choices to routinely access services is very important. And so I think there's a great deal of interest. And again, because of COVID, I think we've improved our telehealth networks. And so people are becoming more and more comfortable using that as a healthcare option. So I think this is going to have a positive impact on using those technologies for STI care as well. Thank you. And yeah, from what you say, it sounds like a a real candidate um, 
state for, for remote testing with the rural approach and lack of public health resource in a, in a lot of the county. And what is are individual people's approaches to STIs and, and, and remote testing? You know, we, we have an image, certainly outside of the US, of the South being more conservative, less likely to talk about sexual health issues and, and address them directly. Is that the reality? It is the reality. And I think that one of the things that we can do is is we can start trying to use different methods, more modern methods. So social media, things like little TikTok videos and YouTube videos that are educational, but in a fun sort of way. Again, reminding people that sexuality is part of being human and that there are consequences of sexuality. So we need to kind of either deal with them up front by engaging in safer practices, or we need to deal with them at the back end by engaging in routine testing services. So I think that we are trying to use more modern techniques, including things like gamification. So you can make it an app on a phone where people learn things, but they get little badges or they get little rewards for having gotten through a certain number of levels or having referred a certain number of friends and so on and so forth. So I think it's these more modern approaches that are more likely to resonate with youth everywhere. But that said, I think that we do have to recognize differences in people's situations. So, for example, in some of the counties that I've been working with in rural Alabama, only 10% of high school children have access to the Internet at home. So when we say, oh, well, we'll do Internet-based test provision, well, that's not going to work for 90% of the students, right? So we need to understand people's realities and their lived context so that we can actually really speak to them in a way that's meaningful to what they need and what they want, but also is feasible within the situation that they live in. Thank you, Bobby. And yeah, I know the gamification is something that a lot of healthcare businesses are looking at as a way of engaging younger people and getting that stickiness, which is key, isn't it? Not just getting people to look at things, but for people to actively engage that's right. Mm-hmm. And in terms of the, the research that you're doing at the university, do you collaborate with other bodies across the US? I'm thinking of, you know, the CDC or some of the other stakeholders in the world of, of sexual health. Sure, we do. And I think that's one of the advantages of being here in Alabama is the state right next door to us is Georgia, and that's where the CDC is located. It's only about a two and a half hour drive for us. So we actually have a great collaborative relationship with them, but also with other academic institutions. And as I mentioned, National Institutes of Health. So, you know, we have a lot of projects that are being done at multiple sites throughout the country. We do have a lot of people here at UAB that are also interested in global health. So they're working in South Africa, they're working in Kenya, Cameroon, um, Southeast Asia. So, so yeah, we have a lot of opportunity to really engage in a lot of different settings. And that's why I think that one of the things I have learned through those collaborations is that we really have to understand and appreciate context because what works here isn't what's going to work in New York City. And what works in New York City isn't going to work in Wyoming. And 
I have no idea if what works here in Wyoming and New York City would have any chance at all of working in London. And if it worked in London, would it actually work in the rural UK? So all of these things are micro environments that I think we need to be mindful of. And we can't tailor everything, but what we can tailor, we probably should. Yeah, very, very true. And, you know, as you say, there is huge differences in in different settings, different cultures, different urban and rural environments. And we, we do need to be mindful. So at the beginning, Bobby, you mentioned the International Society for STD Research. Tell me a little bit more about that. One of the things that we'll be doing at that meeting will basically be a hackathon where we ask younger people to sit in a room and pretend that they've been given a billion dollar budget and tell us how they're going to fix the problems that we have with sexual health and STI control. Because it's really important for us to hear from the next generation of investigators and also community members. We give out scholarships. We usually have about 30 to 40 people attending from resource-limited countries that attend free of charge. Those people will be invited to this hackathon to make sure that we're hearing the voices from many different regions of the country or of the world. But in addition to that, we'll also be inviting community members who have either received services or who don't use services for whatever reason to give us their input as well so that we're not actually just coming up with ideas that, in fact, people would never use. So we're really excited about that opportunity, but it's still a year and a half away. So we're working toward getting the best science that we can get to be all in one building and have, you know, three or four days of really intense exchange of ideas. And what sort of countries, Bobby, do you have representation from? Does it tend to be developing countries or or is it fairly global? It's very global. We have good representation from Europe, the UK, Western Europe. We have a lot of people that come from Australia where they're doing fantastic research into sexual health in a variety of different directions. We'll have a large Asian contingency, and that includes China, Japan, India, and other parts of Asia. And as I mentioned, there are a lot of people that we collaborate with on the African continent, and so we hope to have a lot of investigators that will be attending from that region as well. And we're also associated with the International Union Against STI, which is abbreviated IUSTI, and they can be found at IUSTI.org. And they have regional and global meetings that actually divide the the world into five regions, and those regional meetings are intended to really be able to focus on whatever is going on that's particular to the needs of that region. And then the global meeting is something where everybody can get together and share their thoughts across regions. And the International Society for STD Research meeting will be held in conjunction with the IUST 
global meeting in 2023. So it should be a really fantastic collection of both researchers and community members at that meeting. I'll get it into my diary, Bobby, and uh, I'm, I'm a member of IUST, so uh, look look forward to hopefully being able to travel and, and being able to attend. Knock on wood. And in the past, we, we've spoken very much about the situation of, of remote testing in the US, which I know has been complex, certainly in comparison to many other countries like the UK. How is that progressing and what are you seeing in terms of the uptake and openness to remote SDI testing? Well, that's a, a really great question. I think the uptake is increasing every day, and that's a great thing. We still have regulatory hurdles to try to overcome. And I know that the Food and Drug Administration or the FDA is very interested in supporting the work to make remote testing something that's well-regulated, but it's difficult because it's difficult to control what happens on the internet. So any company that wants to can create a web page and they can say that they're doing whatever they want to say that they're doing and they can take people's money and they may or may not then have a quality product. So that needs to be regulated and controlled, but there are projects that are being led by health departments. And so, of course, those have excellent reliability. We can trust what's going on with those. So it's a mixed bag right now, and we are working to overcome the regulatory hurdles. I know the CDC is very active in working with the FDA to try to make it possible to have more access to remote testing and also have better regulation of who's doing that testing. It's difficult compared to other countries like the UK because since we don't have national health service or, or universal health care, everybody is sort of on their own about how they pay for this individually unless they're accessing it through a health department. So it's complicated, but I think we're moving in the right direction. And I certainly know that all of the government agencies at the federal level are very eager to find solutions. And so when that's the case, then that's a positive situation. Absolutely. So, so is it fair to summarize that the concerns around quality are not so much within the public domain, but it's more about the, or some of the companies selling to, to consumers directly? That's correct. That's correct. And and what sort of, without naming names, what, what sort of concerns are you seeing? Well, we had a couple of case reports, for example, where, for example, a person was diagnosed as having syphilis, but it took almost two months for notification of that infection to get to the local health department. As you know, syphilis is a very important disease and has very drastic consequences, particularly in pregnant women. And so we try to manage syphilis very aggressively in terms of treating the patient quickly, but also notifying all of the patient's sexual contacts that they may have been exposed and offering them testing and treatment just to make sure that we've cleared up as many cases as quickly as possible. But so when there's a very long lag between the diagnosis and the local health department being notified, that's not helpful at all. And there was another case report, again, about syphilis, where a person was treated via the direct-to-consumer's medical 
um, contractor and they were treated completely inappropriately. So that syphilis would not have actually been managed, might still be active. And that person thinking they were treated might still have been transmitting that to sexual partners. So it's this kind of thing that we worry about. There are just places where things can fall through the cracks and we want to make sure we close that up. And we also want to make sure that that people are only offering high quality and appropriate tests. So if I can give an example, one of the things that um, people should not be using, but the, the person who's the consumer may not know this, no one should be collecting a vaginal swab and using that to test for herpes. Because the reality is we can't interpret that test result. So for example, if the person tests positive for herpes, we don't know that that means that they're having an active outbreak. They may just be having asymptomatic shedding of the viral DNA. So we wouldn't want to treat them based on that result because we don't know enough information. But on the other hand, if they had a vaginal specimen that tested negative for herpes, that does not indicate that the person doesn't have herpes because they may simply have not touched an active lesion. So the complications with that type of testing suggest that it really shouldn't be offered, but several of these um, direct-to-consumer websites do offer that testing. So it's that type of thing that that's one very specific example, but it is that type of thing that we would like there to be more regulation to ensure that only appropriate testing is being offered because we cannot expect the consumer to know all of these details. Absolutely. Consumers won't be experts. So it's vital that um, the consumer market's regulated and that's going to get all the more acute as um, the number of, of remote tests increases over the, over the coming years. That's right. And, you know, unfortunately, with the US model, it's it's all about sort of the capitalistic model of let's make as much money as we can make. And, and so I'm not saying that that everybody that offers services online has bad intent. What I'm saying is that we just we need to be able to regulate it, we need to be able to have some price controls on it. The state of California, in a really bold move, has now legally mandated that any direct-to-consumer testing that a patient pays for has to be covered by their insurance. So that's positive, you know, really, really exciting. We'll see if that stays or if it gets overturned, but it's a good step forward because otherwise if people are paying out of pocket, it can get quite expensive. The other thing I would say is that we really want these experiences with direct-to-consumer testing to be very positive for the patient. We want them to have very good outcomes. And so, like I said, if an infection is detected, that's a fine thing. That just means it's detected and we have the opportunity to treat it. But that means that we have to do the treatment and we have to make sure they're linked to care. So we don't want people to have a notification that they have an infection and then struggle to find treatment because that will leave a bad taste in people's mouths. And we don't want people to pay for something and never receive a collection kit or pay for something, collect their specimens and then never see receive results. So all of these things, you know, had happened in the past. I'm not saying that they're happening now, but they're just things we need to be really aware that we want to make sure consumers have 
a really positive and helpful experience. And then that will encourage them to continue with this as a routine mechanism of assessing their own sexual health. Thanks, Bobby. And are you engaging with the consumer providers to push for best practice and and get them to collaborate? Um, And that's something that we're trying to do through a number of mechanisms. And one of those is the American STD Association. When I was president, we wrote a position statement to give people guidance on best practice because we do think that's very important. And we're working with um, the National Coalition of STD Directors. These are the directors of local health departments that offer an STD program. And we're trying to work with them in that same way to help everybody understand best practice and what they should be offering to their clientele. So I think that um, through the professional societies that I belong to, I think that we are trying to do that on a national level. And I think we're also working with other people that reach out more to the consumers to try and help consumers understand, you know, what's out there what questions they should be asking and how to best use these opportunities. One thing that I've never really understood is the different remits of the different umbrella societies in the US. I know there's the American STD Society, uh, NASDAD, um, the NCSD. Do they have different remits? Are they targeted at different professionals within the SDI field? How how do those bodies interact or or not, as the case may be? So they, they do have slightly different remits, but ultimately it's all about provision of service. And many of the organizations are actually funded through the federal STD control program. That funding comes through CDC. And so even though they have slightly different charges and obligations, because their funding is from a central source, they actually do get together. They do collaborate. They do try to make sure that we're sending unified messages and that we are not stepping on each other or competing, but all pulling in the same direction. So yeah, there is a fair amount of cohesion and planning that goes into all of these different groups the groups then are just composed of sort of the different actors at each different stage. So some of them may be people at the state health department versus local health departments and so on and so forth. But yes, I think there's really good coordination among these different agencies. And um, in terms of how you see the future, Bobby, the next two or three years, how do you see the whole STD field developing in the U.S.? Well, I think the good news is our technology is going to expand our reach. We are going to allow the end user to actually take more ownership and control of their own sexual health in such a way that I'm hopeful that younger people will start testing themselves you know, annually or on some regular basis or when they have a new partner or whatever they feel like makes the most sense given their lifestyle. And I I think that that's going to be, whether it's through direct-to-consumer or whether it's through home-based collection or whether it's through eventually home testing, I think we're just adding to our toolbox. And so nothing is going to replace the old paradigm, but what we're going to do is we're going to expand it out like an octopus so that we have many more arms reaching into many more places. I think 
the area of concern that I have for our field is that fewer and fewer younger um, physicians and researchers are actually able to go in to the STI world because the funding is so difficult to get. And so if you work in an academic setting, you know, you're driven by opportunities for funding. And if there are no opportunities to do STI research, then it's really hard for young people to go into this. If you look at the difference in the U.S. between HIV funding and STI funding, it's orders of magnitude. So STI funding is in the millions, HIV funding is in the billions. So I'm not saying that HIV doesn't need to be funded. What I'm saying is that the STD world is very difficult to sort of make a living in as a researcher or as an investigator. And I think we're losing some of that expertise in terms of ID physicians and ID physicians that specialize in STI specific topic areas. So as we've moved more and more of our care out to primary care physicians and ultimately out into the people's hands themselves, we're losing the opportunity to have specialists that can really be informed and knowledgeable about this topic area. And unfortunately, STDs aren't like every other infectious disease, and there is some level of expertise that is required. And so I'd like to I'd like to see people being interested in the field and being able to survive in the field and build a career here. And so we're working toward that end through the ASTDA and through ISSTDR and other organizations that have the capacity to support younger people, whether they're investigators or whether they're practitioners, to come into the field, to become knowledgeable to go through some training programs specific to STIs and then hopefully really be able to provide specialist services when needed. So there's good news. And then I think there's a little area of concern. And do you see that changing? I know we're in the field, Bobby. So we we see a lot of press releases and publicity, but I'm seeing, you know, pretty much on a weekly basis, an article or two about the rise of STIs in the US or elsewhere. Do you think there'll be a shift due to that in the funding for research over over the coming years? Or are you more pessimistic? I'm a little more pessimistic because we've been on the rise for about since 2013. And in fact, if you look in the US at when we really started to have major increases again in all of these infections, it's right about the same time that they started shutting down STI specialty clinics and trying to move those services into primary routine care. So that's why I'm so concerned about the loss of professionals in the field. But the other thing is, I think that it's difficult for STIs because it's really difficult to have an advocacy base. So it's difficult to have a woman stand up and say, I got chlamydia when I was in college and now I'm infertile and can't have children and try to push for funding. I mean, you know, people aren't really willing to do that. It's difficult for people to get up and say, I got herpes when, you know, I was whatever, and now that has affected my entire life, and it still is affecting me. So people aren't comfortable advocating for funding to go toward STIs because people don't want to talk about them, and people really don't want to be the face of STIs, right? So I I think that we struggle 
with funding and by struggling with funding, then it makes it harder to provide good quality services. If you think about all the technological advances, they're only good if somebody can pay for them. So if I can ask people in rural settings, would you use this? And they say, yes, but I can't pay for it. Well, how do we get to that next step where somebody pays for it? So that's our challenge. Um, And I'm not super hopeful that we're going to find a way to get the U.S. Congress to really prioritize STIs. But on the other hand, Again, there are positive outcomes from COVID because they have put a great deal of funding into disease intervention specialists who contact and trace infections. Those people, when COVID goes away, knock on wood, it ever goes away, will revert back to doing contact tracing for syphilis, HIV, and other STIs. So there are some, there's some silver lining to the COVID cloud, and we have to try and take advantage of that while we have that opportunity. And, and so that's one piece of hopeful news. I like to always try to stay positive wherever I can. <laughs> That's great, Bobby. And yeah, there are, you know, we're all down with the COVID situation. But as you say, there are a few um, silver linings to the clouds, aren't there, with that and the acceptance of different forms of testing and an openness to to testing that I I didn't see a few years ago. So hopefully we can uh, we can continue that without having the the burden of COVID going going forward. <laughs> and and just one final question Bobby which is one that I ask all of our interviewees probably quite pertinent speaking of young researchers and people into the field but if you were speaking to a young researcher coming into the field or somebody who's thinking about entering the world of STIs what sort of two or three bits of advice would you give them? I think it's important for young investigators to be a little bit more broad in their thinking process than maybe they were when I came into the field. So I came into the field as a chlamydia person and I worked on chlamydia almost exclusively, probably for the first 20 years of my career. But now I work on a number of different STIs. And, you know, I think that that, that sort of larger viewpoint is really helpful. The other thing is, I think ultimately, no matter what we do, we have to always come back to what I call the end user, which is a person. And we really have to be mindful of the people and and their lived experiences and their current context. So for example, if I'm offering a test at a student health center, that test has to be something that can fit into the speed of that person's life because they've got classes, they've got this, they've got that. They want to come in, they want to do something, they want to get out the door. But these are the people at highest risk for STIs, so I want to give them full care coverage, right? So I, I think that we need to understand people's realities, be mindful and respectful of that. But that also then goes for if you're a practitioner, I think you need to be open to change. I find a lot of times what I hear is this is the way I was taught to do it and this is the way it's always been done. But I think we have new opportunities now. So we need to think about implementation science and we need to understand how can I make this work in my clinic and how can I make this work for my patient population or how can I make this work in this community? And I think we just need to be very flexible and adaptable. 
And I think that's hard for some of us because, you know, we're taught one paradigm. And so we understand that and we know how to do that. But sometimes we just have to say, it's time for change. Let's do something different because this isn't working. Rates are going up, not down. So we need new solutions. And I think we need new thinkers. And that's why we need young people. Thank you very much for that. So youth and flexibility are the key words. That's right. So we need to all stay young, no matter how old we are. (laughs) Young and flexible. Young young in spirit. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for for your time today, Bobby. Really do appreciate it and, and hope it was interesting or as interesting for you as it was for me. I always like hearing what other people are doing. So I love talking to you in the background. So thanks a lot, Nick. Thank you very much for listening to the Sticks and Stones podcast today. So we hope you enjoyed today's episode with Bobby and getting a a different angle into the world of sexual health. For our next episode, we will be speaking to Javier Gomez from the Ministry of Health in Spain, who has been working on HIV and STD prevention and campaigns. So again, should be another interesting conversation, bringing you an interview with somebody who is at the forefront of changing the world of sexual health for the better. So please tune in for that episode. And if you haven't already, please do subscribe. And if you do have a moment to rate and review us, it really does help other people to find this content. And remember, you can also follow us on Twitter under Sticks STI. That's Sticks S-T-I-I-X, S-T-I. Goodbye, and thanks for listening. Sticks and Stones is produced by Birdline Media.